Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Hey folks. Before we get started, I wanted to let everybody know that one of my guests from this season, Daniel Kofin, has a new book out. It's called Reading the Way of Things Toward a New Technology of Making Sense. And it's available right now from Zero Books, or you can order it online from Amazon. Ask Kate Swoboda what it takes to start a business, and she'll tell you it takes courage. In fact, courage is such a central element in her message that she often goes by the name Kate Courageous. Kate went from college English professor to life coach several years ago, and now trains life coaches to move through their own doubts and fears and accept the challenges they come up against. In this episode of Hack the Process, Kate will discuss how she realized that life coaching was her next calling, why chasing motivation can be a distraction from getting things done, and how one common core fear keeps many of us from pursuing our dreams. So today I'm speaking with Kate Swoboda, who also goes by the name Kate Courageous. Kate, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thank you for having me here. So Kate Courageous, that's a heck of a name. Where did you come up with that and how does it apply? Well, I realized at a certain point in my life that courageousness was something that had really informed the backbone of all of the best bold moves that I had made. And I don't know, the idea just kind of occurred to me, like Kate Courageous, like what a cool kind of alter ego fun name. And I guess other people liked it too, because people would say, I don't even think of you as Kate Swoboda. I think of you as Kate Courageous. And sometimes people would even say, is Courageous really your last name? And it just took. And I was like, well, I dig it. I think it's pretty fun. So I'll keep it. The way that I describe my work is that I help people go from feeling confused, which is often a state of feeling afraid, to feeling clear. Because when people feel clear, they find the wherewithal to take action, to trust themselves. I want people to create courage as a habit. And I'm very big on actually practicing courage as the primary mode of work instead of trying to outrun or not feel fear. I think fearless is BS. I think it's just another form of perfectionism, and I don't think anybody is fearless, no matter what they say. I think the as good as it gets is you own it when you're afraid, and then you choose to do something really powerful, like practice courage. What I'm currently working on, I mean, I've got a couple of things. I run a life coach training program that actually teaches people how to become life coaches, and it is at tribeclcc.com, and that's where I try to help people who are becoming life coaches actually both work on the fear stuff that they have coming up for themselves as well as teach it to their clients. And I am also very excitedly working on, I have a book contract. I got a, I sold my book proposal and I will have a muscle talk. Yeah. Thank you. I will have a book on shelves, which has been like a lifelong dream of mine in 2017, maybe 2018, but I think late 2017. So I'm very excited about that as well. It's a wonderful feeling. I just recently got a book published myself and going around and seeing it out there, it just, it really fills your heart with warmth. 
Yeah, it's a game changer, I think, or at least that's what people tell me. And it's been a dream of mine since I was a little girl. And, you know, if you'd asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, when I was three or four years old, I, I would have told you, I want to write books. I mean, the day that the editor called and said, we're going to buy your book proposal, I was like, I mean, my brain was offline. I was so happy. That's awesome. You'll, you'll have to cycle back with us and give us links to the launch when it comes to pre-release so that we can include it in the show notes. Wonderful. I'd be happy to. Yeah. Cool. But getting back to what you've been working on, life coaching is, is an interesting term. I think a lot of people have heard it. And I think there are a lot of conceptions and misconception about what life coaching actually is. How do you define and what life coaching is? Well, I get asked that question a lot. And the thing is, there's a lot of debate in the industry about what it is. And then there are people who try to define it. And then therapists get kind of ticked off because the most common way that coaches typically define it is they say, Therapy's about your past and rehashing what happened then and coaching is about your future and moving forward and taking action. And I know some wonderful therapists who would go, that is, I help my clients move forward. I help them take action. I really don't like that characterization. So to try to help people understand what coaching is, I often will try to use the example of who it's best suited for. So if someone were to start exploring why she was having so much difficulty in her intimate relationships, and through that process, she came to some realizations and she started to feel like she was breaking down under the weight of those realizations, that is someone who really should be in therapy because the therapist is going to both have the clinical experience to know when sadness has officially crossed the threshold into something very serious that needs more attention, as well as have more clinical experience specifically in working with people who are struggling with those particular issues. I think a lot more support resources are available. And then I believe that if someone were to explore those issues through coaching, the person who's better suited for coaching is the person who's going to start coming to these realizations. And then instead of it being a process of feeling like they're broken down by them, and that can happen temporarily, but I'm talking about the overarching process being one of going, oh, now I, I have this insight and I understand this thing about myself. And because I understand this thing about myself, oh, now I get this other thing about myself. So that's how I typically will explain it to try to help someone to understand the difference between the two disciplines. Because usually I find that when people are asking that question, they're really seeking to know, like, what's the practical application? Like, how would one know if one was better suited for coaching or therapy and, and things like that? I think a lot of people out there are asking that question, not only how do you find the appropriate coach or therapist, but also knowing where in your life it's appropriate to apply these particular things. Were you involved in life coaching yourself? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I became a coach in 2006. You know, at the time, I just thought that it would be like kind of a fun way to make a little money on the side. I thought that entrepreneurship was too scary and that I'd always need stable income. I was an English professor and I thought what I wanted was to become a tenure track English professor. And I found that I like really hated grading, hated like endlessly grading comma splices and run on sentences, but I really loved curriculum design and I loved classroom interactions with the students. I really loved when the students trusted me enough to say, hey, I'm having a hard time, and they came to my office hours to talk about their paper, but somehow they're also talking about their lives. 
and I got interested in coaching. And so I became a coach in 2006. It was just a hobby for many years. And then I realized I really want to make this my full-time gig. And I completely and totally flopped on the gig of quit your job and, and have your passion tomorrow. I don't think that's a viable path for most entrepreneurs. I think you need to build yourself a runway. But eventually, with enough time, I was, in fact, able to let go of my teaching job and later decided, I want to run a coach training program. Like, I'm I'm jazzed about this craft. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Oh, that's awesome. Did you yourself have a life coach when you were doing this? Oh, yes. I've had the same life coach for, God, a decade now. In fact, he was our couples coach my husband and I, before we got married, and then he married us. <laughs> His name is Matthew Marzell. He doesn't have a website. He's not even on Facebook, but he's amazing. How did you find him? Referral. My husband, at the point when we were not yet married, we were having a lot of difficulty. And a lot of it was due to my stuff, I think. Everybody in a relationship has their pattern, but I was definitely the more aggressive person in the pattern. And I didn't fight fair when we would fight. And my husband does men's team work where he, you know, is part of like a men's team. They kind of, they do some recreational stuff like go camping together sometimes, but they mostly get together. I like to say they get together and beat their hairy chests and then talk about what it means to be a man, you know, and like how money can define men or the box that society wants to put men in around defining masculinity and when he was having trouble in our relationship, he talked to some of his friends on his men's team about it, and they gave him a referral to Matthew, and life's never quite been the same since. <laughs> the men's movement is a fascinating one. I know it's gotten a lot of bad press <laughs> for various reasons. People don't understand that properly applied, it actually is very strong feminism. I would say that's a, an apt characterization. I, I would say it, it definitely applied in our marriage. In your practice, I believe you focus mostly on working with women, right? Mm -hmm. How did you come to that? It was never strategic. I just really enjoy working with women or kind of the issues that come up for women, the double bind of, you know, Brene Brown talks about this in her work about when she talks about the double bind of shame, like you don't want to be too much of this, but you don't want to be too much of that. So it's like, we want you to, you know, be the ultimate mother. If you're in a boardroom, we don't ever want you to look like you're actually a mom. You have to like totally turn that part of yourself off. And I think that it's just been something that I've been drawn to. I haven't had as much of an opportunity to work with male clients either. And the few times that I have, I, I've noticed that they wanted the work to be more goal-directed. And I tend not to do as goal-directed of work, like, like outcome-directed, I guess, would be a better way of putting it. I like having goals as metrics to guide what can happen with coaching, but I don't judge the success of coaching based on, did we hit the metric? Did we hit the outcome? There's a lot of richness, I think, in the journey to get to there. And there's a lot that somebody can learn about themselves if they don't hit their metric and then need to actually be in all of that. And that's what I like to work with people on. I like working on fear and resistance and the parts of a person that just feel like, I don't want to do it and I've lost motivation. I, I like all that gritty stuff. And, you know, the coaching industry will, will often call a resistant client, quote unquote, uncoachable. I was uncoachable when I first started seeing Matthew, my coach, and, and I'm so glad that he stuck with it and was, was interested in the journey of it and not just 
did we get over here to some kind of external outcome? I love the courage that you demonstrate just by being able to express that you recognize the extent to which you were the problem in this in a situation, or at least a big part of the problem. And I imagine that that was something that it took a while for you to get to. Oh, yeah. And it's funny. And that's kind of what I say. It's like, I think that the more you go into your own stuff, the more capacity you have to hold space for someone else. So yeah, owning that was definitely been hard and been unfolding. But it's also been like, yeah, I mean, like, how am I gonna be credible at all if what I try to present to the world is perfection? <laughs> I'm not perfect, you know? Nobody is. None of us is, absolutely. And I think those cracks where people see the vulnerability that really invites people in, and that's what gets engagement going. Yeah. I mean, I like being around people who are like, yeah, I got a little part of me that's effed up. You know, I mean, those I don't, those are my people because I think they're real. When I'm, when I'm talking about courage, I had a blog post somewhere recently where I said this, like, when I talk about courage, I'm really talking about being real. And that's really what it's about. I don't think it's, I don't think my work at least is about the courage to like jump out of an airplane or quit your job and start a business tomorrow or travel the world. Although those are all great things to do. And I, I don't think that they're bad or something or less courageous, but the quality of courage that I'm interested in is about psychological courage, not necessarily the courage to do a particular thing. I've heard people say that fear is actually a very good guidepost that you're moving in the right direction in your life if you move toward the things that you find inspire your fear. Yeah, yeah, it definitely can be. I'm curious if there were specific fears that you've had to fight through in order to get to where you are. Well, I think everybody's fear, if you like scrape off the top crud layer, it's really a fear of, am I good enough? I mean, really, that's what I think it is. When it matters to us, somebody had said to me recently, well, you know, if I have a fear of water skiing, that doesn't mean that I feel inadequate or like I'm not good enough. It's just I have a fear of water skiing. It's like, okay, I see where they're going with that. But I'm talking about the things that matter. You know, like if somebody has a deep longing their entire life to become a champion water skier and they just won't even try because it's like that's about them feeling like they're not enough somewhere, not good enough. And inadequacy is part of that. So I think that we all struggle with that. And I'm very open about the fact that I hit those points. If I'm in a conflict with a friend, the top layer is maybe irritation about the conflict, maybe a fear that she won't be my friend anymore. But what's really that fear of if she won't be my friend anymore? It's about, well, if she isn't my friend anymore, what does that say about me? <laughs> you know, like that I'm leavable, that I'm unwanted, that I ultimately wasn't worth working it through for. And that's the fear of not good enough. Now, of course, the part of me when I'm not caught in that fear totally gets that, that it's actually not about being unwanted or, or any of those things, right? It's, it's two people doing the best they can and they're both imperfect and everybody has their reasons for when they stay and when they go. Like when I'm not caught in that fear, that's the way I'm going to think about it. But in the moments when any of us are caught in fear, it's always, I think, coming to a fear of, am I good enough? I think it's true in business as well. It's like when people say, what if I can't pay my bills? What they're really saying is, what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not smart enough? What if I'm not enough to make this business work and then can't pay my bills? That's really what's going on. I think that that's such a scary phrase that it's very hard for some people to even say it to themselves. Yeah, there's a part of me that kind of goes like, if you want to start getting comfortable with the fact that you don't feel like you're enough, you really got to start hanging around people who don't expect you to like be perfect. So that's part of it too. Like 
when we're buying into the culture where you could always be better and you could always be perfect, the media and, you know, a lot of the catchphrases I even see on self-help are about mediocre people quit before the finish line. Well, like, no, like perfectly wonderful people sometimes quit before the finish line. Like it's just this binary world and I just don't buy into the binary. So I'm assuming this is something that you still do a lot of life coaching. So this is probably something that comes up for your personal clients as well. Yes, I'd say that's a lot of what comes up and particularly around things like business and changing careers and all of that. It's, am I enough to do this? Am I a good enough coach? Oh gosh, I think so-and-so is a better coach than I am. Comparisons, you know, like all that stuff comes up. You came to this with a background in, in teaching. You were a professor and I'm sure that that helped you in terms of building your program. Did you have any training as to being a life coach or training life coaches? Yes, I did. I went through a life coach certification. Well, it wasn't, it isn't actually endorsed by the ICF, the program I went through. So I did a local San Francisco program, although they didn't even focus on life coaching, actually. They focused on counseling. And then I was a volunteer for the Challenge Day organization for several years as an assistant. And so I would come into their workshops and like do group process stuff with everybody and I did actually even at one point think I want to be a therapist and I did all the prerequisite work and all the applications I got into grad school to get my marriage and family therapy license and I was there for a week. It's like that sinking feeling of like, no, this is all wrong for me. This is just not what I want to be doing. I thought that therapy was going to be like coaching on steroids. And as somebody who's pretty excited about coaching, I was like, it's going to be so great. Like, But it was so much about how insurance companies are going to like block a diagnosis. So you have to write the diagnosis this way. Or, you know, the some of the professors were downright cynical. I remember this one guy, he said, if you're very lucky, you will finally get to the place in your career where you are able to work with high functioning neurotics. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> okay. So it was a good experience because I think that otherwise I always would have had this kind of insecurity around like maybe therapy is where I'm supposed to be and I just haven't gone that direction. And sometimes I still kind of go, I just want to go to school. And now that I know what it's about and I don't have these high expectations, maybe I'd just do it, just become a therapist. Why not? I don't know, because I love to learn, but I don't know, not, not at this time. I hung in for the semester because I wanted to give it, you know, the old college try. I talked to people who were advanced in the program who were about to graduate, and I said, here are my concerns. Does it ever change? They said, no. Is it just this one particular teacher? Is it that? No, it was the whole program. It was the whole system. And so I dropped out. I can understand that. Although you did mention, I believe there's, there's an accreditation board for life coaches. It's informal. It's not actually endorsed by like a state or federal backing the way that the Board of Behavioral Sciences is. There are actually two different groups that are kind of competing. I think it's the IAF and the ICF. And ICF, I think, is the better known of the two. And my coach training program, for those people who desire to be certified through the ICF, 
we model our program after their core competencies to make that a possibility for them so that if they want to, they can aptly say, like, I have the qualifications to be able to meet your certification requirements. Carl Rogers, the founder of Person-Centered Therapy, if you geek out and read his books, which I do, from the 1960s when his work was becoming popular, he wrote about not wanting to standardize therapy because there was already a move being made to, to do that. You know, he, he's writing about this in the 60s and 70s before the advent of an HMO. And he said that when you start to standardize therapy and require ever more certifications and licensures to become a therapist, you actually diminish its power because it loses its spontaneity and the full quality of beingness with the client. And I'm a huge Carl Rogers fan. I mean, you know, from what I have read, I just, I read his books and I feel like I'm tucking in with like a great novel, like reading this person who just, he feels very alive to me. I want to take you back to the beginning of your career when you were at the time a professor and you were starting to transition. You mentioned that it didn't go as well as you had hoped to initially. And you didn't, you didn't launch yourself out there to the great success <laughs> that you were hoping. Can you take us a little bit through that process? What happened? Well, I think that I had the illusion. I mean, it makes sense that I would have it, I guess, in school and even in the corporate arena, the people who work hard are rewarded with good grades and promotions. So, you know, you spend several decades of your life, I spent several decades of my life in school, in jobs, and if you worked hard, it gets noticed, you're given these metrics, and so it, it sort of fosters this belief of, if you just work hard, you're going to have success. And so, like, people told me how hard it was, and I just kind of honestly thought that, well, maybe it was hard for those people, but, like, I'm really willing to, like, throw 60, 80-hour weeks at this so that I can, like, subvert, you know, like, the learning curve and I can get there faster. And there just is no getting there faster, I don't think. I think anybody who tries to sell you on three quick secrets to get to wherever, sometimes, yes, you can get there faster, but not in the, in the arena of doing the real work. And it is real work to know what your brand is about. It is real work to set up all the miscellaneous pages on your website. It is real work to do your own work, to know who you are. And all of that feeds into the whole. So I just tried to go from, I have a little bit of savings to within the next month or two, I'll be totally replacing my teaching income. And it's just like, no, no, that's not enough of a runway. I mean, it just doesn't work that way, I don't think, for most people. But what did you try? How did you actually try to build up this business at the time? Oh, I thought if I blogged more, like more often, you know, like a lot of people blog once a week. I thought if I blogged more often, more content equals more eyes on the con, right? You know, I would, gosh, I, I put up flyers. And it's not that those efforts didn't yield something. It's just that they didn't yield completely replacing salaried income within only a couple months, you know? So it's like I would do all these things and they would totally get me results. But I wasn't going to get the same income that I had made from teaching with only a couple weeks to months of hard work. It just wasn't gonna happen that way. When you've put the time in and you have a larger platform, of course, it's a very different thing to put a call out saying, I'm open for new client sessions when you have a platform of, I'm, the only reason I know this number, because otherwise knowing it off the top of your head sounds so arrogant, <laughs> but like I think my total platform numbers for my book proposal were like 20,000 people. 
you know, across all my newsletters and all my social media and da 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 da. So like it's a completely different thing to put the word out to 20,000 people, I'm open for sessions, than it is to put it out for 200, I'm open for sessions, or 20, you know, when you're first starting out. And it's, like I said, I, I think that a lot of people think that it's going to be easier for them if they just work harder. I think a lot of people get stuck in, if you build it, they will come and don't realize that that's what they're doing. I certainly didn't. In hindsight, I'm like, oh yeah, I totally thought if I built it, they'd just come. But that's just not what happened. And that's fine. You know, it, in the, like a lot of coaches get caught in, a lot of entrepreneurs get caught in, oh, it must be me. Well, yeah, you probably got to keep refining your systems because that's just part of life and innovating because it's just part of life. But it's probably just that you're really green and you're really new and you don't have the numbers yet to really just announce that you're doing something and have a lot of people say, yay, I'm on board, you know? Can you take us through what are the, the pieces of your business today? Because you've got the writing, you've got the coaching, you've got the classes, you've got the presentations. I'm curious, what constitutes the business that you've built for yourself? Okay, I'll go timeline style with this. So like, yourcourageouslife.com is the first iteration. That's where I do a lot of my writing, okay, and offer one-on-one -on -one coaching. And it's also where people can get information about speaking. Just in the past year, I've been hired out a couple times privately and was not even aware that anyone would want this service, but was asked, would you come to my business and do some like interpersonal workshops for my team? And that's been really cool and exciting, but that's not like a primary node of what I do. So there's the writing and the coaching personal growth around fear and courage. And then in late 2010, getting into 2011, I created a product called the Coaching Blueprint. It's a digital marketing program that walks people through what I see as how they can build a blueprint for their coaching business. Like, don't do it my way. Don't do it somebody else's way. Don't do it Marie Forleo's way. Do it the way that, you know, build your blueprint. Do it your way. And so this is me trying to walk people through that and ask them questions that get them to think about what they want their brand to be, what they want their website to look like, stuff like that. And then in 2013 is when I started the research process, which was quite intensive and curriculum development for the Life Coach Training Program, the Courageous Living Coach Certification. These days, what my business looks like is predominantly spending my time on your courageous life, writing and curating content around courage and how we practice courage, as well as spending time with the coach training program. The marketing piece of things is something that is taken a back burner. You know, people can buy it, the coaching blueprint. It's an evergreen product. So people can buy it anytime and it requires very little maintenance from me. So that is like the picture of what my business looks like. Day to day, what does that look like? It's talking with awesome people like you and sitting on my couch that's behind me here and writing, being on the phone with people, doing curriculum design, working on my book, communicating with my VA about things that need to get done. Voxer is the app that we use. Basecamp is the task management system that we use. I was going to ask you about the technology because everybody comes up with a different stack of things that they end up using especially when they've sounds like you've got an assistant and do you have anybody else working on your team? 
have some great people on my team. So it's not just me running the Life Coach Training Program. It is a team of leadership people. Paula Jenkins is one of them who you had interviewed for your podcast. Um, so there are seven other people on that team who are working with me to really give a lot of personal attention and care to the trainees and also to support me because there are times when something comes up in the program and I'm like, I am feeling totally frustrated about this and I don't know what to do. What do you guys think? And they'll tell me. So how do you coordinate all of that communication? Because it sounds like you work from home primarily. Mm -hmm. Yes, totally work from home. I use the app Voxer for voice message, walkie-talkie type texting back and forth with my VA. You just hit a little button and start talking and I can hit a little button and say, hey, did you ever follow up on that email with so-and-so? And I put my phone down and when she gets a second, she listens to it and then she voxes me back. So V-O-X-E-R. And then Basecamp, where we have tasks listed out, things to do. And I also Vox with the leadership team for my program. So we have a big group Vox where you can hear everything everybody's saying to one another. And private Google communities. That's something else I'll add is that the Google Enterprise, like the customer service has been awesome every time I've needed help with anything. They're totally helpful. Very cool. Talking about communities, that kind of brings me to those 20,000 people out there who know about you and are interested in finding out more. How do you coordinate your communication with them? Well, I like to sit down and say, I kind of work by season. And so I like to talk to my VA and say, kind of, here's what I'm thinking of rolling out for fall. And here's what I'm thinking of rolling. And I don't even mean a paid thing. Like, I don't know when this is going to air, but on November 15th of every year, I offer free annual planners to everybody who's on my subscriber list, like a real planner, not a, you know, little like, here's a couple of quotes, like a real calendar planner one that's business-based, one that's life-oriented for you to do like kind of a, an annual review of your life. And, you know, so it's like, okay, what do I want to roll out in the winter? And it's like, here's what I feel like writing about. Here's what's going to be coming out. You know, even if it's something that's free, I'm thinking about, I don't know, I, I know this sounds totally cheesy, but when I'm rolling something out, even if it's free, I often feel like, like it's like preparing gifts for someone and you're imagining the look on their face when they're going to be opening it and how they might feel when they see what's inside. Like that's what I think about when I'm preparing something. Like I really want people to open their email and feel like, holy shit, I'm strapped for cash this Christmas season. I don't have a lot. I've been feeling like I need help getting my life or my business back on track. She's give me this 80 page planner. <laughs> so like, you know, like I, I want somebody to feel like, yeah. And so far people feel that way and it's awesome. And I love doing it. That doesn't sound cheesy to me at all. In fact, that, you know, <laughs> gifting is part of my language of affection as well. And I know a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. And I like that you've incorporated things that get you motivated because it sounds like that's one of the things that keeps you motivated about your business. I'm curious how you keep your motivation up. I actually think that motivation is like the booby trap. Like when people talk about, I lost my inspiration, I lost my motivation. I think a couple things. I think one, compassion, because fear likes to pull that. Fear likes to pull a little move where it's like, hey, I know how to like keep you from doing this thing you really want to do. I'm going to sap all your motivation. Booyah. You know, so there's that. But then I also think, too, like sometimes it's it's like somebody just hasn't had as much experience with adulting. Because guess what? I don't always feel motivated running my business. I don't always feel inspired. I don't always like everything that I need to do to make this viable and make this workable. But, you know, you got to put on your big girl panties sometimes and like 
get her done because there's this bigger vision out there. It's like, I don't always feel like coming up with something to, to share on social media, but that's the job because that's going to lead to that share, giving someone something at that perfect moment when maybe they were struggling with that very thing. And then later they decide to sign up for the newsletter. And then two years later, maybe they're in my coach training program. I don't know. It's, you know, it's not about the capture, but there's like this bigger vision that I have that's about the craft of what I do, what I want to give and making money. And the three of those converging is important to me. And you're not always going to feel like doing it every single time. And I think it's unrealistic when people think that entrepreneurship is just this fantastical journey full of days where all you do is hang out and do yoga and, you know. <laughs> I, I like your spin on perspectives about motivation because I think a lot of people do view it as if I'm not feeling motivated, then there's something wrong in my life. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're really looking long term <clears throat> at your goals and at your plan, you realize that the motivation isn't always going to be dragging you forward. You need to be pushing. Yeah, a chronic lack of motivation is a different story. But in terms of when someone goes through like a month where they don't feel motivated, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going, you know, like I think a month is about my limit. And I, also, too, I think sometimes that's the call for innovating and iterating on what you do. I mean, I've absolutely had times where I have not felt motivated in my business. And then I went, all right, I just got to like pull out this list and I got to go, what do I want to do? And what do I not want to be doing? And how do I do less of the stuff that I don't want to be doing? Can I delegate it? Can I get rid of it? Can I hack it, automate it, you know, somehow spend less time on it? I don't know. To me, that's just what adults do. I, I, that's just part of adulting. That's part of that. And I think that that's been really helpful. Now, if I did all of that and I still was really not feeling like my business was fulfilling to me on any level, then yeah, that would be a problem. But most of the people I've met only stop at the part where they aren't feeling motivated and they feel like they have no other options and they don't really like try to create them for themselves. And I get it. You know, it's hard. But it's also, you know, like I want to give like a little bit of a kick in the pants and kind of go, come on, this is your dream, this is your life. Like I'm a total existentialist, okay? I mean, like I'm sitting here right now and I'm like, I got news for everybody. You're going to die, okay? Like this is like the worst thing to say for some people, but like we're all going to die. I'm going to die someday. And this will be like a creepy audio recording from the voice that said, we're all going to die. And I don't know, like some people go, oh my God, I'm going to die. And they get really hung up in the anxiety of it. I go knowing that my time here is limited becomes motivating to me. I want to make it count. I don't want to fucking watch Netflix every night for the rest of my life. And like, I want to, I want to create things I want to create. And I want to have great conversations and you know, like life's too short. And that's a cliched phrase, but I take it as life's too short you know, make something of it, like really enjoy it, live it up, drink the wine, go to Italy, have the kid, go on the adventure, write the book, start the business, take up macrame, whatever you're crazy about, do it. That's beautiful. I think there are, there are people out there listening to this right now who want to hear that and who need to hear that. I hope so. I hope so. Like, you know, it's just, uh, there's somebody who just recently in our circles had died. Katie Campbell, who wrote the book, The Courage Club, she had cancer and she just recently died, oh, I think like a week ago as of this recording. And it's, she's 32 and married and had so many dreams and so many things she wanted to do with her life. And I just go, I'm so glad that she spent the time that she did trying to get people to wake up. I mean, I'm not 
dying of cancer or anything, but I feel something of an urgency around like, hey, everybody, wake up. Like, this is your life. It matters. No, it's definitely on your path to help people hear that. And it sounds like that's one of the things that, that does pull you forward and that keeps you pushing against this. When you do have those, those elements in your life that you feel might be sapping your strength or making you feel less motivated. Yeah. Could you share with us maybe an example of something that you had to get out of your life that was sapping your strength and that was keeping you from moving forward along your path? Mm, mm, that's a great question. I would say that the most recent large example is that, you know, my daughter, as of us having this conversation, is a little bit more than two. And for the first many months of her life, I was... And I was so surprised that, that it hit because I thought I'd be so pragmatic. But mom guilt hit like crazy. I had to have a C-section when she was born. I couldn't breastfeed. Because of the C-section and the configuration of our home, I couldn't co-sleep. So there was no room beside the bed for her to have a little co-sleeper bed. Because if I had to get up in the middle of the night for any reason, you know, you have a C-section, it's surgery on your abdomen. So like you can't. You need all the space you can beside your bed to be able to roll over, get up, stuff like that. I didn't, I was in too much physical pain to constantly wear my baby 24-7. And, you know, I'm, I'm in Northern California, which is like ground zero for the attachment parenting movement. And I don't have a problem with attachment parenting as a theory or as a practice. I have a problem with anybody of any parenting theory who dogmatically uses it to put mothers down who aren't doing the same thing. And I did run into a couple of those people. And I was really unhappy being this endlessly self-sacrificing mother. I was so guilty every time I had to drop my daughter off at daycare, but I could not hack it. I tried for the first three months after she was born. I could not hack it being full-time mom with baby and home and working on my business. I couldn't do it. So I had to utilize daycare. And basically the thing that I needed to do that I needed to let go of is I really needed to grieve this idea I had had in my head of like being this certain kind of mom who had done everything a certain kind of way and who also was hooked into the ego of being able to like report to the other moms how great I'd been, <laughs> you know, with all of my constant baby wearing and breastfeeding and everything else. Like, again, I don't criticize those as choices, but like there are certain moms in certain circles where people use those as badges of honor to make themselves feel better than other people and to look down on other people. And I really had to had to just go oh, like I need to make my peace. It's dragging me down. Like it's killing my work. I'm exhausted. I constantly feel guilty. I'm crying to my husband about how I feel like I'm not doing anything in my life particularly well. That was a process. But once I started to really let some of that stuff go, it's like I could, you know, sit up a little taller and kind of own my choices. And then it's like, whoa, wow, how nice that my parent, you know, I had to go, well, if I'm not making my parenting decisions based on what I think somebody else might say I should do. Well, what do I want to do? What's my way of doing this? And that opened up a lot for me. And I really have found parenting to be so much more like enjoyable. I mean, I definitely still have, you know, she's two, she melts down, you know, because you didn't hand her a cracker. But like, like I can deal better than I, I could if there was a problem in that first year. 
It was really profoundly changing to just let go of a way of being that I thought I had to be because that was the only thing I was really seeing around me. And I love the way that you phrased that. You talked about having to mourn the loss of that person that you imagined yourself becoming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, another place I can think of that is with business. When I didn't have the like crazy success story that I had been hoping for, I had to mourn that a little bit, like kind of like, wow, like I really had quit my job thinking I was going to have this great success story. And instead, my story is that I need to build a bridge, that I need to go back to salaried employment and build a bridge between salary to self-employment. And that's part of my process. And there was a kind of badge of honor that I ended up getting out of that because, you know, there are times when it's like the job felt soul sucking and I didn't want to do it. But this is for a higher purpose. And it, it rooted me in really appreciating what I want to do, too. I'll say that. I can imagine. And making room for that in your life, making room for that mourning and that acceptance, I think, is something that people struggle with, especially when they're not talking to somebody about it and uh, you know, sharing it and making it tangible and for themselves. I'm curious for you doing that. How do you manage your self-care process? What do you do to take care of yourself? I would say that my self-care process is in a state of total transition right now. I am reading a book called The E-Myth Revisited. I think that it is... I know that book. <laughs> I am totally, you know how he talks about the first phase is you're just so happy to be like working for yourself that you'll do it. The entrepreneur is the person who will work 23 hours a day for themselves to avoid working one hour a day. You know, so there's that. And then now I totally see how I've been talking about it with my VA too, how I've set it up for the next stage, which is like, I find this amazing VA and then I start just kind of delegating everything to her, but that's not actually a workable system because if she quit tomorrow, I'd be so screwed. So I'm in the process right now of overhauling and actually doing what the E-Myth Revisited says to do, which is to define all the roles, all the jobs within your company. Even if you don't have the money to fill every single little one, define them, that this is very important. And I see why, because I can totally see why it keeps you from darting between doing 10 things at once. So self-care is going to be changing a lot. Right now, self-care is a very when-I-can-get-it proposition. The time I like to have it best is first thing in the morning. After my daughter is dropped off at daycare, my husband is at work, the house is quiet. It's a time for me when I feel most like tapped in and connected to the writer part of me, which is hugely important to me. So I try to do pleasure first. That's been shifting though. I am currently juggling the start of a new year of the life coach training program. I got the book proposal, as you know, and that's the process of both creating new chapters and editing the chapters they've sent back to me and going like, it's like two different brains and trying to create these job roles, frankly, is, is a large undertaking. It's time consuming. So it's, it's a hit or miss type of proposition. And part of the reason I go into that so much is because God, like I'm so tired of like hearing a podcast or an interview or whatever where the person's like, so my self-care is like really great. Like I get up in the morning and I just like stretch and I like say my affirmation for the day and then I meditate and then I have a green smoothie and then I do my yoga and then I, it's just like, I mean, like I'm not saying those people are liars. I'm just saying like, that just ain't my life with a two-year-old and a business to run that is shifting in terms of how I run it. So I just want to like be the voice for all the other people who are like, amen, sister. 
<laughs> you know? Absolutely. I don't think self-care can reasonably fit into such a structured routine. It has to be flexible in order to adapt to what we actually need at the time. A lot of people don't describe it that way, so I'm just trying <laughs> to keep it real. <laughs> That's fair. So I'm curious if there are role models out there, people you modeled yourself after, because it's hard to build a life like this. Danielle Laporte, man. I mean, I think she is so generous and in her transparency about wherever she's at, she is so, she, she doesn't hold her cards close to her chest. She really, in putting out there how her business runs, I, I feel like I will often have like a lot of great ideas and then I don't know what kind of framework to put them in. But once I've got the framework that this idea is going to fit into, like, is it going to be an e-course or is it going to be an audio or is it going to be like a couple of blog posts? I don't know. You know, there's all these different containers for the idea. Once I see that, um, I can move forward. And so often I've had longings in my business. And then Danielle Laporte says something about, here's what we do. We have a team and, and, you know, on our website right now, it's like everybody's role on her team. And particularly because I just started reading the e-myth, it's like, thank you. Thank you for, you know, thank you. Like, because now I, I'm not saying copy her. I'm not saying like, you know, copying is a crappy move. Nobody should copy. But like just seeing the framework and then I go, ah, there's a framework. I could take that and put that into this and this and this and this. So I enormously admire and appreciate and am so grateful to her for her transparency about her business. And I would also say it's not a model for business, but a model for life. I, I love Pema Chodron. She's the author of When Things Fall Apart. And that book is another one that is just like a model for a way of living for me and, and like a book that I've really dog-eared a lot of pages. Probably would have would have done better to just highlight the things that I didn't find pivotal in that book <laughs> because I would be doing less highlighting and underlining, you know. So I think for a lot of our listeners, the business that you've built right now, the place where you are, is a model that they might want to aspire toward. And I'm curious, if you had to start all over again, how would you do things differently? And well, if, you know, for those that listener out there who might have that dream and that idea? Well, I would say it's two things. It's emotional and it's strategic. So emotional on that level, like I almost feel a little emotional thinking of this. I would, I would probably really like want that person to know like, Hey hun, you're going to make it and it's going to be fine. I think the hardest thing about business isn't figuring out how, how to do a Facebook ad or something. You know, I think it's navigating the fear <laughs> and the inadequacy and the, and the, the getting caught in the high of thinking that because something you wrote, like got you a bunch of followers one day, like getting caught in that, you know, and thinking it means something about you and you're so special. And then like realizing, Oh, that was a total ego trip. Like it meant nothing that, you know, I got a bunch of followers that day, like not nothing as in, you know, cause there are people behind those numbers, but like it didn't actually change my life. I got an ego trip out of the numbers. So, so it would be more gentleness. And then strategically, I would say, I don't know. I, I just look at it. I guess the only thing, although I learned something from that, I feel like everything I learned something from. I like that. And it sounds like the, the, the meta message in there is that making the mistakes is actually part of the process. And it's not like you can, you can't sidestep that. There just is no way that I've found to grow things faster than they're going to grow. I, I think that the best thing anyone can do is 
decide what they really like doing to market themselves and then do more of that. And one of the things that I did, and this is before the, the term podcast I think even existed. Maybe it did. I don't know. But it wasn't common. That's for sure. Is I went to my bookshelf one day and I said, who's written a book that I really, really love? And let, let me just reach out to them and see if I can interview them. Because what's the worst that can happen? They'll say no. You know, like who cares? So they'll say no. I'll live. And so I went and did that. And I got interviews with Brene Brown and Sark and um, Sherry Huber and like all these people who I'd been reading their books and thinking they were fantastic and like, holy shit, I'm on the phone with this person. I get to, I get to like ask them questions about their life and their work. And, and I love that I, that I did that. So I just go, that's an example. You know, that's my, my advice. That's the strategy, I would say. It's not so much what I do differently as it is being gentle with yourself and doing not things differently, but like, what do you want to be doing? And then do a lot of that. I love that. That's excellent advice. So how can my listeners find you online? Primary place is yourcourageouslife.com. And then my coach training program is at tribeclcc.com. I'm Kate Courageous on basically every social media platform, except Facebook business page is facebook.com forward slash yourcourageouslife. So I'm all over. You'll find me. Fantastic. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You're so incredibly welcome. It was a pleasure. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.